Well, it is our final week of the series Acts Redux, our, our short study of the book of Acts and how our world is moving more and more to a book or to being an ex- a world like we saw in the world of the book of the Acts. Um, I want to say good morning again. My name is Dion. Glad that you're here. And uh, I, I want to I ask your apologies if you're live streaming and you don't live in this part of the country or if you're new here to this part of the country, because I'm going to be hyper local here for a second. I want to speak specifically to those who might be uh, 60, 50, 60 years old and who grew up in this community because I found a picture this week and I wonder if you can help me out with this picture of what this picture is. Anybody? Anyone know what this picture is? is? <laughs> yeah, people are saying it's, this is a picture of St. John back uh, circa 1950 uh, as, as I understand it. Right here is Manchester Road. Um, right here were some of the church buildings that used to be here a long, long time ago. And um, I, that might even be part of a school building. I'm not, I'm not even sure. I can't make heads or tails of this thing because it looks so different, right? Now, uh, anyone here in this room remember when Manchester Road might, might look like that? You don't want to admit to being that age? Is that what it is? Okay. A couple of you are bold enough to admit it. Thank you for that. Um, I can't imagine how much you have seen, how much change you have seen, not only in this church that's been around here for 165 years, but how much change you have seen in, in just this area. Because now, Manchester Road doesn't look anything like this, does it? I mean, you drive down the main road here in our community, and it's loaded with, with businesses, just businesses and strip malls and car dealerships and churches. I mean, for a long time, we were one of, one of the few churches in this area. Now, church after church, and there's Methodists, and there's Lutherans, and there's Baptists, and there's you know, Catholics, and just all kinds of churches. So many churches, they all just sort of blend together now on Manchester Road. I bet it looks pretty different uh, if you grew up looking like that. Now, for me, I've only lived in this community for about seven and a half years, and I can say that I have also seen some changes in our community as I drive through it. There are still lots of businesses and, you know, strip malls that are changing over and things being torn down and rebuilt. There are a a few less car dealerships now um, as you drive through our community. There are still a lot of churches, but here's what I notice as I drive through our community lately. I notice a, a, a strong increase in synagogues, temples, mosques, or at least uh, Islamic information centers, um, schools, and academies of other religions. That's changed in the last seven and a half years that I've lived here. I see an increase in, in uh, just different religious influence in this area. And I'm not proud of this, but I'm not going to lie either. There's a part of that that disturbs me. And I think I get more and more disturbed every time I see something on the news about what's going on in Europe, specifically France. A lot of crazy stuff's been going on in France over the last few years, just horrible things. Um, but, but even this last week, if you caught this news story, it's just baffling to me. In, in the region of Normandy, there's an 85-year-old priest who was killed by two Islamic extremists, uh, crediting ISIS for, um, for th- this priest's murder. 85-year-old priest murdered while conducting mass, while conducting a service, a church service. I mean, there's just so much wrong with that that I don't even know where to begin. And so again, as I drive through our community and I, I see some of these changes, I'm not proud of it, but I'm not going to lie about it either. I feel some distress. I wonder if, hey, you know, in, in 10, in 20 years, are we going to be in the same place that Europe is in? Are we going to be experiencing the same kind of horrific things that they are? Which, which I fully understand. I, I hate those thoughts in my mind because I realize that's dangerous thinking. It is, isn't it? 
I mean, that's the kind of thinking that, that leads to all kinds of atrocities and has led to atrocities committed against people groups and ethnic groups and religious groups over time. That's like what, what led to the internment camps in World War II on the West Coast. That's what led to the Mormon expulsion even in our own state back in our history. It, it's not healthy thinking. I realize that. And yet I'm just acknowledging, I'm confessing before you today that I feel some anxiety. I feel some distress as I see our world or our part of the world becoming more pluralistic. As I see this, this confluence of all different worldviews and religions mixing together in our part of the world. See, if, if you're like me, you probably haven't had to deal with this much before. And yet today, we're going to learn how to deal with this in a God-pleasing way. Because there's lots of not God-pleasing ways to deal with this. And so we're going to go back to Acts chapter 17. Because although this world may be kind of new to us, this a pluralistic world, a world of diversity, of lots of different competing religions, was the world that the early church was born into. And so while it may be new to us, we can learn a ton from how the early church navigated the world they were living in. So we're going to go to Acts 17, and uh, this is going to complete our short, mini, not very thorough study of the book of Acts. In fact, since we last left off in Acts, a lot has happened. Um, there was a guy named Saul who came out of the scene after where we left off. And Saul was a chief, like the chief persecutor of the church. He was imprisoning Christians. He killed Christians. He was this zealous Jewish guy who, who didn't like the Christian movement. Well, since we left off, Saul came onto the scene, and then Saul also had a 180 conversion, where he went from being the chief persecutor of the church to the chief advocate of the church, which I think is, 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 is a pretty incredible. I mean, how often does that happen in life where someone does a 180 on their whole worldview? It's, it's not common, is it? I mean, when a Democrat becomes a Republican, or a Republican a Democrat, I mean, that, that, that's big news. That person's on Time Magazine because people just don't do that. They don't shift their worldview so dramatically. But this guy, Saul, who later is known as Paul, he does. And so I just want to say to you today, if you're someone here and you struggle with aspects of Christianity, maybe you struggle to believe all of it, or some of it seems mythological, or some of it seems like a hoax, let me just tell you, there was a season in Paul's life where he would have agreed with you this guy that we're going to look at today. Uh, but then something happened, and he turned 180 degrees, and he went from persecuting the church to being a chief advocate of the church. He began traveling all around the world, and his travels eventually led him to the place, a place called Athens. You've heard of Athens, Athens, Greece. Paul goes to Athens, and Athens is no longer a political center, but it is a center of philosophy, of religion, of thought, um, education. And so Paul is in Athens, and while he's there, He's, he's going to teach us a lot about how to live in this changing world that we're living in. So we're going to go again, Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So Paul is in Athens, but he's waiting for some of his friends to join him. So he's, he's in Athens, and this is like, you know, there aren't train schedules, and they're coming on the five o'clock train or plane. Like, no, you know, ancient travel takes a while. So he doesn't know how long he's waiting, but he's there waiting in Athens for his amigos to show up, and he's just kind of looking around, and he notices something about the city, that the city is full of idols, you know, Athens was a city that was very religious. All of these, these man-made idols that people would worship, and there were temples built to all these different idols representing different gods. And Paul looks around the city, and, and what's his reaction to that, to this very pluralistic place? What's his reaction? He's distressed. Whew, right? So let me just say that if you look around our world, 
and you look around our country and, and you see all of this, this mixing, and if that gives you, if that, of, of different religious ideas, if that gives you some distress, it's okay. Paul felt distress. But it may not be okay for the reason that you think. See, if, if you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, then you should feel distress when anyone is, is living out in a, in a religion, living outside of that, out of the claims of Jesus, living in a religion that, um, that, that, that doesn't give what Jesus can give. Let me try it this way. If, if you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, then you should feel distress when you see people practicing another religion that can't give them life now and forever. Uh, if you believe Jesus is who he said he was, then you should feel distress when you see people you know, faithfully giving themselves over to a religion that just keeps taking from them and adds nothing back. If you believe Jesus is who he said he was, then you should feel distress when, when you see people believing that that pleasing God is all on them, it's all up to them, and that in order to be loving or acceptable to God, that they have to work, they have to be moral, they have to be good people, they have to do acts of extreme things, extreme violence, whatever it may be. People believing that, that it's all on them to please God, to make God happy, that God is, God is innately angry and upset with them, people who live under that, you should feel distress for their sake, not for your sake, for their sake, because who can live up to that? See, it's okay to feel distress. The question is, what do you do with that distress? And I told you before, lots of bad things have been done with that distress. What are we called to do? I think we've got two options. We can either remove ourselves from that distress, we can isolate ourselves from this changing world around us, the pluralism, or we can engage it. Now, in recent Christian history, what are we most likely to do? <laughs> to isolate, right? That's just what we're good at. We, we isolate ourselves. We build walls between us and people who believe differently. Literally or figuratively, we, we build walls. Um, and, and this is just kind of what we do as Christians as a whole. We, we've got news stations that we can tune into or turn on the TV. And there are news stations that will speak only the news that we want to hear in the way we want to hear it. Basically ensuring that we can isolate ourselves from anyone who believes or thinks differently. And we've got social media. I just saw an article on this this week. They, they called social media a great echo chamber. Because here's what's crazy about social media. You may have hundreds or thousands of friends, but the way the algorithms work on social media, on Facebook, the way they work is they are more likely to show you viewpoints and posts that agree with you so that you'll stay on social media taking in their ads. And so here's what happens to your mindset. You know, you've got hundreds or thousands of friends on Facebook, and most of what you're going to see are people who think what you think, unless you're related to them, you just get stuck with those people anyway, right? Because you're family. Um, you're going to see what you see, and, and, and what happens is we just get more and more isolated, and sometimes we don't even know it. Um, in our own communities, this happens. Sometimes when the community starts changing and people of different worldviews or religions move in, we move out. Or, or we say, hey, we can exist, but we're going to kind of peaceably coexist in our own separate spaces, and we wall people off in cultural or religious ghettos. It's way easier to isolate than to engage. And, and, and the reason is, I don't, believe that, I don't believe that most of us in this place are racist or xenophobic or anything else. I know you, I don't believe that's your heart. Uh, what I believe is at work here is that we all feel horribly unequipped 
to have a conversation with someone who believes something so differently about, about God in, in a view of the world, I think we feel so unequipped on how to do that and not come across unintelligent or uninformed or angry or belligerent or just mean-spirited. Today, we're going to change that, I hope. Today, we're going to learn a lot from Paul as he is in this very pluralistic environment and, and he speaks about his faith. We're going to learn how to do that in a way that won't leave our audience thinking, yeah, what a, what a smug, arrogant jerk or what an ignorant fool, what a belligerent person. Paul's going to show us the way. So uh, I want you to take notes as we go a little further. So Paul's there in Athens, all these idols around. He's waiting for his friends. He feels distressed. So what does he do? So, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So what does Paul do? Does he, does he isolate or engage? He engages, right? And that's step one for us. Step one, engage, don't isolate. It's so easy to isolate. We already talked about that, but I'm going to challenge you to engage. So what does Paul do in Athens? He, he goes to the synagogues where there are people who believe similar things to him and he, and he tells them about Jesus. He engages there, but he doesn't just stop there. He also goes to the marketplace where people who don't believe what he believes are and he engages there. See, Paul is all about engaging, but, but it's not just about engaging. The key is also how do you engage? Now, I want you to notice in just a second, we're, we're going to see it, that, um, that Paul doesn't engage in the way that Christians often engage in our modern times. Paul doesn't insult anyone. He doesn't start smashing idols. He doesn't condemn them to hell right away. Like, he, he doesn't do the stuff that Christians so often do. Right? I remember, I remember Jerry Falwell. He's deceased now. And um, if you know Jerry Falwell, he was kind of one of the founders of the religious right and founder of Liberty University, which I understand to be a pretty good school. But um, Jerry Falwell, he, he was a guy who would engage the culture all the time. But he would do so in a way that I would just be like, oh my gosh, please, no, no. Right, 9-11 happened. And Jerry Falwell, you know what he said? Do you remember what he said? He's like, this is God's judgment. Just said this, you know, just authoritatively as if he knew for certain. This is God's judgment against a nation that tolerates abortion. I remember when the AIDS crisis was full-blown, Jerry Falwell said, AIDS is God's judgment not only on homosexuals, but on a nation that tolerates homosexuality. I mean, he's engaging, but not in a way that is helping anything, right? I mean, a way that we're just like, oh, don't do that. See, I want you to notice Paul engages so differently than what we often see amongst Christian leaders. Um, specifically, step two, he engages with reason and respect. It says, uh, we looked at this first, it said that, that he was in the synagogues and he was in the marketplace reasoning with them, not arguing, not decrying, not protesting. He was reasoning, he was having reasonable conversation, but he also did it with respect, which must have been really hard because, as we're going to see in a minute, these people didn't always respect Paul and his worldview. In fact, let's look. It says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say, right? I mean, here they are, they're these high and mighty, educated Greek people, and here is Paul, this guy who's been educated in Jerusalem. Come on. I mean, Mr. Junior College is trying to talk to the Ivy League. This just doesn't happen. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. 
Then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. So, you know, like they're insulting Paul and he's just staying cool. So they take him to this meeting of the Areopagus. It's sometimes called Mars Hill. It was this assembly place. It was kind of like a, a Supreme Court at one time where, um, where people would hear ideas, where they would look into things. So they, t- they take him to the Areopagus where they said to him, many, uh, sorry, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent all their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. So you get some commentary from Luke about what he thinks of Athens, okay? This is not Paul's view, this is Luke, the guy who wrote Acts. So he talks about this, but, but it's interesting. So these people are calling Paul a babbler. And they take him before their council and say, you, you've got some strange ideas here. And what we'll see from Paul is that he doesn't, he doesn't combat that. Instead, uh, take a look. Next step. Step three, um, he just owns all the strangeness of the things that he's saying. And, and that's what I'd encourage us to do, is to own our strangeness. Again, you know, if you're someone here today and you're not sold out for all of this stuff that we talk about as Christians, you think some of it sounds strange, I'd agree with you. And that doesn't mean that I believe it's untrue. I believe it's very true. And if we had some conversation, I would share with you why, even though it sounds strange, why I believe that it's, it's true. I could share evidence with you, or I could share ration, uh, rational thinking with you, or I could just share some of my own convictions with you. But, but I get that it sounds strange. See, church, we need to get better at this of owning our strangeness. It all sounds like it makes perfect sense to us because a lot of us grew up in it or we believed it for a long time or we've investigated it and we found it, found it to be sound. But, but if someone's hearing this stuff for the first time or if someone hasn't, hasn't lived in it like we have, it just gotta sound strange, right? And I just wanna know, can, can we own that? Can we own our strangeness without getting defensive, without getting angry? without going into attack mode? Can we just kind of just have an attitude of humility and say, you know, look, I know this may sound crazy to you, but, but I actually believe it and I can, I can tell you why. Can, can we just own that? See, if we can realize that what we're saying is strange to a lot of people, again, doesn't mean it's untrue. It just sounds strange. If we can own that, if we can take that upon ourselves rather than putting that on them, if we can be humble about that, then we'll be much, much more effective. So Paul doesn't argue against the strangeness of what he's saying, but he does go a step further and he begins to, he begins to explain. And I want you to look at Paul's language here, the word choices he uses. If you study Paul much, you'll see that this message that he's about to give is so different than what Paul would normally say. So it says, then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, now Paul's Paul's saying, you know, there's this altar somewhere in the city of Athens that he saw, and on the altar there's an inscription, to an unknown God. And instead of attacking him for that, he says, hey, I, I can see that you guys are, you take this stuff seriously. You're very religious. This stuff matters to you. But now I want you to see what he says next. He says, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. Now, this word ignorant, I highlighted because when we say the word ignorant now, we mean something different, right? When we say ignorant, we're more like, y'all's ignorant. <laughs> like it's an insult. We're, we're not being kind when we say that. Literally, this just means, just means they're unaware. 
So this is not an insult. This is not a word. Please don't call people ignorant if you want to keep an audience with them. What Paul is saying is he says, so you're unaware of the very thing you worship. You have an altar that says to an unknown God. You're acknowledging that you're unaware who this God is. So because of that, this is what I am going to proclaim to you. I'm going to tell you about this God you don't know. And then he goes on. He says, and I love the way he puts this. I mean, if you want to study just how to talk to someone who maybe has a very different worldview, study Paul in this section of Acts. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So again, he's in the city where there are all these idols where we're literally craftsmen and artisans. They made gods for people to worship. And Paul says, wait a minute, we got this all wrong. See, see the real God, the unknown God, this God that, that you acknowledge you don't know, he, he wasn't fashioned by the hands of men. He's not served by the hands of people. Rather, he's the God from, from whom all things came. He gives life to everything. He gives breath to everything. He goes on. He says, from one man, he made, you know, we didn't make him, but he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. I love this line. For though, though he is not far from any one of us. I just say that to you today. No matter where you are in your journey, God is not far from you. It says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of our own prophets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such unawareness. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has also set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of, of this to everyone by raising this man, the judge, from the dead. Do you notice what Paul's doing here as he's speaking to them? He's demonstrating something that he's done before he ever opened his mouth. And that is he spent time learning about the people of Athens. See, step four is to be a student of the other. See, Paul says, I, I see you're very religious. I notice this altar. Uh, here, here's what some of your own poets say about this. Again, Paul's, Paul's talk with them is so different than anything Paul ever says anywhere else. He's made it contextual. So often we feel like it's our burden to teach people. We're going to explain to people. We're going to tell them about God. But, but you can't do that right away. First, you have to be willing to be a student of the other. You have to, you have to be willing to, to listen, to ask questions. In fact, in my life, I really believe that um, one of the best ways to, to begin a discussion with someone who believes something different than you do is simply to ask lots of questions. And then listen. Not only do you prove that you're interested in them and dedicated to them, and I think they'll probably return to you the same courtesy. Uh, but but when, when you do that, you'll begin to learn things about people. Now, I know you're thinking, who's got time for that? Who's got time for all this listening? I know I don't. I don't. I'm not a good listener. And yet when you do that, when you're a student of someone else, you may find an opening. Paul saw this altar, and, and he learned about their culture, and so he said, I know how to talk about God here. I'm not going to go in and say, hey, you know, all, all of your gods are nonsense. Instead, I'm going to talk about this unknown God that they acknowledge and I'm going to put a face and a name to this unknown God. All because he was a student 
of the people around him. Now, this is not just something that Paul did as an inspired guy in the Bible. There have been people all throughout time who have been doing this. I want to tell you quickly about a guy by the name of Don Richardson. Uh, Don Richardson was, a, was, in a, was a, a missionary in Papua New Guinea to the Sawi tribe. I got a picture of him here, actually, uh, with his kids. Uh, the Sawi tribe were, um, were a dangerous tribe. They were known to be headhunters and cannibals. And they had killed other missionaries. But uh, Don Richardson, with his wife and uh, one of his daughters at the time, had another one while they were there. They moved there, and they lived amongst the Sawi tribe. And here's what he found. Is, as he began teaching about Jesus and telling them the gospel story about who Jesus was, because the Sawi tribe was kind of this treacherous group of people and they had very different values, what happened when he told them the gospel story? They started applauding for Judas. Judas, the guy who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, yeah, that was their hero. They started cheering for Judas. They're like, yeah, Judas, right? Now, if you're a missionary, that's how you know you're failing miserably at your job. When people start cheering for Judas. And they thought Jesus, they're like, oh, like he's just a mark. I mean, he's, he got duped. Ah, foolish guy. You know, Judas got rich off his master. Isn't that great? So instead of just hanging it up and saying, these people are, these people are helpless. I mean, like, there's, there's no hope here. Like, you can't, you can't break through to people who say Judas is their hero. He took time to become a student of his culture. And he discovered that in the Sawi culture, there was this, uh, there was this concept of the peace child. It's a true concept that, um, that when there were warring families or factions, the way that they would make peace with each other is that one family or one faction would literally give one of their children, one of their babies over to the other family to be raised. And that was, that was like a peace treaty between them. And that child was called the peace child. See, when Don Richardson studied that culture, he realized that they had this amazing concept and at once he knew how to talk about the gospel differently. He didn't go into all this stuff about Judas. Instead, he he began to talk about how God in heaven, the Father, gave us his son to humanity to be the peace child, to make a treaty with us, to end hostility, to bring us back into relationship with him. And because of that concept, because of of talking about God differently, today 70% of Saudi people profess Jesus. Now again, you think, well, I'm not a missionary. I think it starts with just being willing to be a student, to ask questions, to humble ourselves, to listen. And then I believe that God's spirit is active and God's spirit will nudge you and open up a door and enable you to to all of a sudden hear something or see something that will help you talk about Jesus in a way that someone can understand. Not in a way that just sounds strange to them, but a way that really makes sense to their own worldview. So, so Paul, he does all that. He does it really well. I want you to see how this all concludes. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, so he talked about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, but also our eventual resurrection from the dead, some of them sneered. You know, they, they're not buying it. And of course, it sounds crazy to them. But get this, others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council, but presumably he kept on talking because here how this, uh, here's how this section ends. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed in Jesus. Among them was Dionysus. This is my namesake, by the way, the God of wine. That's who I'm named after, a good Christian name. It's quite a responsibility to live up to, let me just tell you. Um, Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, so this really intelligent, a powerful guy, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. See, See, because of the way that Paul approached this, some sneered, but some became followers of Jesus. 
See, I want to go to step five, the last step here. Um, Paul shows us how important it is to preserve the relationship. The way he spoke to them that day allowed some to say, we want to hear more about this. Paul resisted the temptation to make it one and done. See, it's never one and done, but often as Christians, we feel that, don't we? Like, we get the opportunity to speak. We've got we've to say everything. We've got to tell the whole story. We've got to make sure that person commits to Jesus or believes that day. And often what we do is we sacrifice the relationship in order to make a point. Paul wasn't willing to do that. He continued the relationship. He preserved the relationship because every time you speak, every time you get a chance to have another conversation with someone, that's another chance for God's spirit to work. See, you can't change anyone's mind. If you've got teenagers, you know that, right? If you've got two-year-olds, you know that. It's, you can't change someone's mind. You can, you can like force them to behave differently, but you can't change someone's mind. Only God can do that. Our job is to preserve the relationship to, to have conversations where God can do his work by his spirit. And just like with Paul, people will come to believe. Now, now here's the thing. Here's why I believe this is so important. As, as our world, as our country, as our part of the country becomes increasingly pluralistic, as people who believe different things about God move in next to us and become our neighbors and, and they, they take up businesses and, and residences next to us, we're actually being given a great opportunity we're being given the opportunity literally to bring greater peace and stability and hope to the world without having to travel anywhere. See, we don't have to go to Athens because the world is coming to us. See, I just want to remind you of something. Our enemies of faith, you know, like the stuff that's happening in France, people who do all those awful things, our enemies, they're not so much evil as they are deceived by the evil one. Can we remember that? They are under the influence of evil. That doesn't necessarily make them evil. They are deceived. And so the best way to, to come against our enemies, the, the best hope for peace, isn't to kill off all of our enemies. It's to open up their eyes to the truth, to help them see and hear and understand the truth, to come out of deception. That's the best hope we have for this world. You know, back in the time of Jesus and Paul, Rome was in a season called the Pax Romana. It was, it was 200 years of stability and peace in their empire. And, uh, you know, historians look back at that and they go, man, what an incredible thing, 200 years of peace. But do you know how that peace was won? That the peace came at a very high cost. It came from a brutal government who was willing to kill anyone who dissented or made trouble. And so that peace, the Pax Romana, for 200 years that Paul and, and Jesus lived under, Man, they were victims of that peace. Their blood was shed as a result of that peace. But, but in the meantime, under this Pax Romana, do you know what God was doing through his church, through people like Paul and Peter and John and the rest? He was beginning to bring a peace into the world that didn't require force or violence or persecution or bloodshed. He began to bring a peace into the world that came simply because people were willing to love their neighbors and to have a relationship with them and to share about the God that they're unaware of. Now, tragically, somewhere along the way, the church lost this. And, and you know, peace came to this world and the revolution started, but then the church lost this and we started doing the stuff of government. We started power, you know, doing power and, and strong-arming people and persecution and, and that's when we lost our power. But now today, here it is, here it is. God is bringing the world to us. He's putting people all around us who believe differently and in every one of those situations, there is an opportunity to help someone find life and hope and freedom and to discover real peace. That comes from knowing 
the true God through his peace child, Jesus Christ. See, I believe the real problem in France isn't an immigration problem. I believe the real problem, the real issue in France is that the church in France has been dead for decades. No one's there opening the eyes of their neighbors. And so deceit just lives on. See, we have to decide, what are we going to do, church? Are we going to leave it in the hands of Caesar? Are we going to let Caesar do all this on his own? Are we going to let government officials do this through might and strength and power and warfare? And and that may be necessary. That's for them to decide. But what are we going to do? Are we going to adopt their methods? Or are we going to go back to the ancient wisdom of Paul, the proven method of Paul? Are we going to do this stuff as we interact with our neighbors? Are are we going to help open up the hearts and minds of people to truth? Because I'll tell you, when you meet Jesus, when you truly meet Jesus, when you see him, when you know him, when he comes to reside in you, when when you trust in him, when you find the, the grace and the freedom that comes from him and him alone, that not only changes your eternity, but, but that begins to change the world. So church, we have to decide what we're going to do as our neighbors look different and believe different. And by we, I mean me. I'm going to have to decide what I'm going to do. And you have to decide what you're going to do. And here's what I can tell you. That simply by loving our neighbors and engaging them in the way that Paul has taught us today. Hearts and minds can be open and our world can become a place of greater peace. Let's pray for that. Father, we pray today that in our crazy torn up world that you would give us the same spirit you gave to Paul. A spirit that doesn't drive us to isolate ourselves in fear and self-preservation and worry and dread. Father, instead, give us a spirit that gives us courage to engage, but to engage in the right way, to engage in a way that is winsome and loving and respectful and and reasonable and humble and all the things that we talked about today. Father, we look around the world sometimes and we, we see what's happening and I think too often we give evil too much credit. We assume that evil is behind everything that's going on in the world. And and, and that's definitely true in some ways. But Father, we also see you moving. You're doing something. You're bringing the world to us. And you're giving us opportunities to open up their hearts and minds. And who knows what can happen when a person turns towards you. Maybe a whole nation turns towards you, God. We confess that we are fearful and small-minded. But give us the same spirit you gave to Paul. Use us to love our neighbors. Use this church to open up hearts and minds. Bring hope and peace to this world through more and more people coming to know Jesus. It's in his strong name we pray. Amen.